This week on Q&A, author and columnist Amity Schles discusses her latest historical narrative titled Coolidge. Amity Schles, author of Coolidge, when did you first get interested in this president? I was writing my recent book, Forgotten Man, and everything was broken. Forgotten Man is a book about the 30s and how the economy was broken. And I thought, what happened before? And there was a period when it was fixed, and that was the 20, and that was Calvin Coolidge's. So I thought, this is the prequel. I've got to go back and figure out what went right in the 20s. Before you do that, talk about him. I mean, do you read about him today? And I guess the first question I'd ask, could he be elected president today? I think so. That's really the challenge of the book, whether we can choose someone who's as uh, principled as he is as president. He did not believe Coolidge, who was president from 23 to 29, that perception is reality. He thought principle was reality. Reality is reality. So the challenge for us often is, do we just have to have someone who's good-looking and speaks well, good salesman, or can we have someone who's got principles? And I, I do think we can. We kind of deceive ourselves generally that we need looks alone, perception alone. Who did he put around him? So, Very important question. Coolidge came into office from being vice president. Unfortunately, the president, Warren Harding, died. So there's a cabinet there, and some of them are compromised. We remember Harding was a period of scandal. So do you keep them? And the modern position might be our political advisors would say, clean sweep, right? Broom out, get them out, so you will have the appearance of integrity. But Coolidge also prized respect for Harding. Those people weren't condemned yet, innocent till proven guilty, and continuity for the sake of the people and markets. So he kept the cabinet for a while. Eventually, some people left. Doherty, you, you see uh, the Secretary of the Interior left. The, the figures who were compromised in the Harding administration eventually left. And Coolidge did have a, an investigation. He named a bipartisan team, that's very modern, to look into corruption in the Harding administration. But he thought first of continuity when he became president that moment in August 1923. Who was his Secretary of the Treasury? Well, that was the same guy. Uh, that would be Andrew Mellon, who was his and Harding's before him, and Hoover's after. Mellon was a, a great figure like Alan Greenspan today, or Ben Bernanke, though he was Treasury Secretary. It was said of Mellon that three presidents served under him. He was, how does that relate to the Mellon name that we know now, the Mellon Bank? Oh, uh, who was Mellon? Mellon was a very wealthy man. He made much of his money. He created an empire in Pittsburgh of steel aluminum was Mellon's. He, he, Mellon was also what we might call a venture capitalist. He would he would give a man money if a man had a good idea, see what happened, maybe in the end sell his share when the man succeeded. But um, sometimes he butted in, sometimes he didn't to the process, but he loved new ideas. He created a whole institute to generate patents, very uh, production-oriented, not just what we say a rent-seeker, not just someone who bought what other people had and held on to it like a monopoly, he, a creator of wealth. So Mellon came to this job, the job of Treasury Secretary, uh, with a wealth of experience from the private sector and a few convictions 
um, and his best partner among the presidents, I believe David Kennedy, and the Mellon biographer would say this too, was Coolidge, who understood Mellon. One thing we have to admire about Coolidge is he knew how to work with other men. It wasn't all about Calvin. He, he, he died at age 60, uh, right after he got out of the presidency. What happened? What was, what was his health like? Well, a, a lot of them did. I think we're, we're blessed with the angiogram. We're blessed with statins, with Crestor. Men now know exactly how well their heart is doing, and it's pretty clear he had something cardio going on. You, you see men uh, dying all the time uh, in politics, and especially in the presidency. Then Harding died, essentially, from... Uh, Coolidge said Harding was tired out, wore himself out, his predecessor. Wilson had that terrible stroke and never really recovered. So the two preceding presidents had been killed. Coolidge was proud he made it. Uh, I don't think he was aware of the extent to which his heart was bad uh, until the end, that something was really wrong. We've got some video that was spoken by Calvin Coolidge at the White House. It may have been the first video of the president speaking. Let's watch so people can see what he sounded like and looked like. I want the people of America to be able to work less for the government and more for themselves. I want them to have the rewards of their own industry. This is the chief meaning of freedom. Until we can reestablish a condition under which the earnings of the people can be kept by the people, we are bound to suffer a very severe and distinct curtailment of our liberty. Again, uh, forget the, the the principles that he had, but he, no teleprompter, reading off a piece of paper, somewhat halting, uh, high voice, all that. Could you think he could make it in a television age? I do. I do. He he actually. They wondered that about him. Then, of course, the new technology then was radio. And it turned out radio was a blessing for him because he had a little bit of a little bit of wire in his voice, they said, and it cut through apparently a very good radio voice. He thought he was on radio there uh, and he read as though on the radio. But it's more his his personality comes through. I don't I don't think we should condemn people if they don't appear to us telegenic. The chapter that I, I thought was was most illuminating about him as a person was and I'm not sure that you pronounce it this way the Odin what is, what is the what is that chapter this is a, when you get to college the outsider that's greek he happened to go to Amherst College very interesting college it had a motto let them um, illuminate the earth basically a uh, college for ministers or future ministers, generally uh, Congregationalist, although there were other denominations there, in Massachusetts. And Coolidge went down there, and at the time he went that, down there, it was a Greek school. By Greek, I mean it had a lot of fraternities. That there were, the, the fraternities were all over, and most kids were in them. And what's interesting about Calvin, and this is all the way uh, through his life, true, Brian, he didn't seem like he was going to make it. He got there. He kind of thought he should be in a fraternity. He wrote his father. We have a letter saying something about that before he got there. And then he he wasn't chosen. So imagine being in a very Greek school with boys richer than you and being kind of shy. He wasn't chosen. And, and I think this is partly, we think of this when we see our families, wasn't sure he wanted to be chosen. Wasn't sure he wanted to give up that much of himself to a group. But it's always nice to be asked. 
and he was quite disappointed, I think, when he wasn't asked. And there's a, an interesting story there. There was another boy at Amherst at that time called Dwight, who was actually poorer than Calvin and maybe shorter and had a little physical disability. But Dwight was a happy boy and much loved and went into a fraternity and Coolidge knew him. They lunched together once in a while. And apparently Dwight blackballed Coolidge at one point for a fraternity. When Coolidge was going to come in, we have a letter that says, so Dwight said, not him, I'll take the other one. Well, Dwight was one of those friends you have who thinks it over and changes his mind and has great regret. And Dwight decided he had underrated Calvin, and that Dwight was Dwight Morrow, who then went to law school, became a big partner at J.P. Morgan, in in fact, when J.P. Morgan was kind of down, Dwight liked underdogs. And eventually Calvin, as president, sent Dwight to patch it up with Mexico in a terrible time. Dwight was our representative, our ambassador there. And that, he had a daughter called Anne Morrow. And Coolidge sent down Charles Lindbergh to cheer up the Mexicans, to 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 bring some comedy to the place. And that is how Anne Morrow Lindbergh became Anne Morrow Lindbergh. So all, a lot of history came out of that uh, very sort of understated, a little bit sad uh, beginning of undergraduate life at Amherst for Calvin Coolidge. But when you read about him and his personality, it, it, it defies logic that this man could end up being president of the United States because of his... What he's called an oddball, called quirky, oddball. silent cow. How silent was he? He was very silent. We we have many stories. You know, there's a famous story of Calvin where a lady said, "I bet I could get you to say more than two words at this dinner, Mister Sir." Maybe he was vice president. Grace Coolidge told the story. His wife, and he said, "You lose." Was that Dorothy Parker? I, I don't think so. But it was told. Dorothy Parker said when he died. Who could tell? A very mean comment. And I want to say, if you go back and look at Coolidge, he was a conservative hero, and then his tax rate was a gold standard tax rate uh, that we saw in the video. 25% was what he got the top rate down to. And he fought like crazy. It started, remember, with Wilson in the 70s. So that was an epic battle. And when you go look at what all the socialites said about Coolidge in Washington, how cold he was, he wouldn't meet with them, you want to remember that they were probably also from families that endorsed different policies, especially Alice Roosevelt Longworth, whose father had a different model of president. TR, it was a, let's get go active bully pulpit presidency and here was Coolidge prissy and cold and not giving out favors so she said he looked as though he'd been weaned on a pickle Coolidge's silence was cultural he was from New England farmers don't talk a lot or wave their arms about because a cow might kick them you know if you've lived uh, and uh, it was uh temperamental, uh, of temperament. He was a shy person, but it also had a political purpose. He knew that if he didn't talk a lot, people would stop talking. And of course, a president or a political leader is constantly bombarded with requests. And his silence was his way of not giving in to special interests. And he articulated that quite explicitly, Brian. Go back again to the college experience, though. You say he liked to, he learned to like to speak. How did that come in, and did he ever get in a fraternity? He ever he got in a fraternity at the end. 
at the very end, senior year, and it was a new one on campus. Uh, so, and he was proud. He wrote his father. The letters to his father are, are beautiful. The Calvin Coolidge Memorial Foundation published them, and they're hard to find. I hope we can publish them again. They're fabulous. He wrote his father. I, you know, I have to have a pin all through his life. You see him writing his father, who wasn't at all rich, but wasn't totally poor, uh, sort of. Uh, a, a important person in his little town. I need this. I need the pin. I need the cane. I need the overcoat. I need the... So I need this. But it was very late, uh, last term, basically, senior year, that Coolidge got in. I think his classmates, Amherst is a small college now, and it was then recognized something in him when he began to speak. He was thoughtful, and he... They... Uh, we want to say, also, this is interesting about their education. There was a great emphasis on rhetoric in education, so the kids had to speak a lot, and they began to hear him, and he had a teacher he loved very much, Charles Garman. Uh, a lot of us um, like Garman and saw, and Dwight liked Garman, Dwight Marr, so his, he began to have friends and feel he was in a club, the club of this particular lecturer called Garman, who lecture and seminar, and he spoke in class, and the other boys said, wait a minute, it's a new man, we don't recognize him. Wait a minute, how come we didn't know you freshman year or sophomore year? We messed up in that wonderful way. You can reevaluate someone in a classroom. Got uh, a, a picture that I want to show you. It's not in your book. This is a picture from the courthouse yard area in Northampton, uh, New Hampshire, where he lived. It's on the screen there, and this has every job he's ever had on that on that statue. Have you ever seen that? I don't think so. I want to read you, though, because we can go back and talk about this, because I still want to know why you think he got all this. He was born in Plymouth, Vermont, 1872. On this statue is what it says. Graduated Amherst, 1895. Admitted to Massachusetts Bar, 97. 98, 1898, city councilor, Northampton, 1901, city solicitor, Northampton, 1906, state representative, Massachusetts, 1909, mayor of the city of Northampton, 1911, state senator of Massachusetts, 1913, president of Massachusetts Senate, 1915 to 17, lieutenant governor, then governor of the state of Massachusetts, 8 and 18, and went on to be vice president in 1921 and president in 23. How does it, I've never seen anything quite like that where somebody's had that many jobs leading up to president. And he almost never lost. How did he do it? He told someone, you have a hobby. My hobby is politics. Running for office is my hobby. One thing was the, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party were different. And there was a, a path. If you help the others, they helped you. He was in the party. It was a club. It wasn't uh, to be entirely looked down upon the way we learned in school. This is, even then, the progressive said he climbed the greasy pole of Massachusetts politics. It wasn't just that. There's some good in the party. The party trains you. It helps you work efficiently. efficiently. But it's also his incredible personal perseverance. And that's what I try to get at in the, his, uh, the chapter about his time in Northampton, Mass. That was the county seat. Um, so after college, he looked around. He couldn't really afford law school kind of bugged his father about it. They well, couldn't really afford it. So he went to read the law the way they did then. You could clerk and pass the bar that way with a firm of two men who liked Amherst and had been there and were important lawyers in the town running for office themselves. And he looked around and learned about his county seat. Why don't I just try this? Whereas Dwight Morrow, his friend, went to law school at Columbia and then went to uh, important sort of Wall Street bank, a, a law firm and then a bank. So this was the old way. 
the Thomas Jefferson kind of way of serving in the country. Don't be a city doll. That's one of the things they read in college. And he was good to the party. The party was good to him. He learned pragmatism. He practiced law on and off the whole time. He was very careful not to be corrupt. One of the issues of his youth, and and remember, his youth is the progressive Republican Party, so he's looking at it, and you can see a progressive record in Coolidge, whether he's a state lawmaker, let's do this about milk, or he worked on busting trusts in theaters, if you can imagine. They saw trusts everywhere in the progressive era, and the hero of that era was Theodore Roosevelt. So he's thinking, is this a good policy or not? What progressives do, hate the big, fight the big, reform government and clean it up. Well, he kind of liked that part, and he certainly had to work in it, because he was often assigned to clean up government, to prune, to shut down offices. Um, But uh, he's evaluating this the whole time. I want to mention he had a mentor who was also silent. I didn't know this till I began to research in Massachusetts at the Forbes Library, where much of his material is. That was called W. Murray Crane. He's a senator, Senator Crane, who helped TR with coal strikes. Uh, Crane was of the Crane Paper Company. So he was a businessman. And the Crane Paper Company, there's a thing we used to call the government plant, printed the dollar. So in a very interesting way, Crane knew about the U.S. economy through the dollar, through how much he printed. And Crane, too, was silent, rarely spoke. Uh, he was the Western Massachusetts leader versus the Boston leader in, in, in Massachusetts politics. And that was Coolidge's mentor. How much of the crash of 1929 could be blamed on Coolidge? He left in, what? March, March, March 29, 29. Right. So you imagine uh, the stock market, uh, we look at this at NYU Stern where I teach, the stock market was 100 for a long time. Then it went up, oh, 200, very high. Coolidge had seen a lot of recessions. It doubled. That's sort of like our 90s, for example, or also after wars with Napoleon, if you look in past, you see incredible doublings. Then it went to 381, that would be September 29. Coolidge didn't approve of that. He'd seen a lot of recessions. He'd spent a lot of his life with the stock market at 100 or below. He knew all, every sinew in him knew that was wrong. He just didn't believe it was the job of the chief executive to intervene. It was the state of New York where the New York Stock Exchange was, where the Dow would be, the Dow Jones Industrial. He knew the owner of the Wall Street Journal, Dow Jones, Clarence Barron, but he didn't think the president or the treasury secretary was really in charge of that. Remember, the Fed was also young, so he looked into it. There's a record of him looking into it. One, another Amherst man was Charles Merrill, who founded what we would call Merrill Lynch, and Merrill went to see him, and they talked about it, and Coolidge was terrified because he was so conservative and he knew what a crash was, uh, but he didn't see it as the president's role, and neither did Merrill. That would be a state um, authority. I don't think, you know, another factor in that period uh, was what Fed policy was, and we all know Benjamin Strong, the great Fed leader, died, and another Fed head came, and maybe the Fed was too loose, and that's an important discussion. But I do not blame this on Coolidge uh, in the least, and one of the important factors you always want to look at is, was the growth in the 20s real, or Great Gatsby's coming out now? Was it all champagne and a lie? The 20s growth was real. Most of it was real. The stock market went too high. People shouldn't have bought a margin. But it was not a lie of a decade, which is something that we learned in school. That must be revised, and this is an effort to do that revision, to to expose the true 20s. Where did you 
first start being interested in Calvin Coolidge? Do you remember the time? Just in in The Forgotten Man, it's about how The Forgotten Man, the history of the 1930s that I wrote, is about how the government came in, starting with Herbert Hoover, and messed it up. Messed up something good. Uh, you know, beyond the, 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 all the things Hoover did, bigger government was Hoover, and then Roosevelt followed with even bigger and more arbitrary government. So I thought, what was it that they messed up? And I had to go back and write a new beginning to Forgotten Men and show what it was that was lost in order to show the extent of the loss. And I thought, wow, this is very interesting. The economics of the 20, that uh, we don't discuss them that much. We kind of think they were, uh, historians tended to pick them as a lie. Great Gatsby, prohibition, people not untruth. Uh, economists tend to say, wow, that growth is interesting and real, most of it. And we talk about, um, for example, RCA, Radio Corp, uh, was described in some of the books, the crash of the stock as a big lie, just a bubble. But Radio Corp had an interesting invention uh, on its mind, what we would now call television, that did turn out to be profitable much later. So, so we look in economics, sometimes markets overshoot when they're anticipating productivity gains. The markets of the 20s are, were really interesting. The look, look at it from the point of view of people. The government, the, the single thing that Coolidge did that we want to remember is that when he left office, the budget was lower than when he came in. That's the story for us now in a period where we're concerned. Well, how did he do that? The economy grew a lot, maybe, I, maybe more than 3% sometimes. Unemployment was below 5%. The budget was balanced due to his own parsimony. How did he manage, though, to keep make the budget go lower? And how did that help the economy? A lot, because he got the government out of the way of the economy, very far into the way we talk about the economy now in that fascinating Do you remember how major. big the budget was then? Well, the number, it depends how you count it, but the way he counted it was about $3 billion. So you want to say, about, and then it would be less than 5% of the U.S. economy, and he was going to get it down to $3 billion. And that was his his, uh, his grail, his holy grail. And he had, uh, and, and the reason this book is so long is the middle section of the book is about his effort with another New Englander who was uh, um, General Lord from Maine to cut the budget. They didn't just cut the tax rates. They cut the budget. And this is different from our modern supply-siders who tend to put the tax rates first. Coolidge always twinned them. And uh, you'll see a photo somewhere of two lion cubs he had. Someone gave him two lion cubs. He said, you, you can't just cut taxes. You have to cut budget. And those lion cubs were named Budget Bureau and Tax Reduction. Where did they... Reside. They resided in the zoo. They sent them to the Coolidge's loved animals, but they sent a lot of them to the zoo pretty soon. We'll come back to Calvin Coolidge in a minute, but uh, let's go back to the Amity Slays story. Where did you grow up? I'm from Chicago. Where did you go to college? I went to Yale College. When you first came to us in 19, I think 1990 or so, you were appeared on this network. Um, you were back from Germany. How long did you spend in Germany? I spent a few years in Germany. I fortunately had a fellowship after college in Germany and got to do some journalism, and then I joined the Wall Street Journal. And uh, I'm, 
You know, I'm interested in Germany now, too. I'm interested in East Europe, what we used to call East Europe, and the future of democracy and freedom there and all that they've achieved and what happened. So my first work was on Germany because I had studied German, and I worked as a journalist and wrote a book about Germany, uh, the empire within, about Germans' conception of who they were around the time of German unification. I want to show you yourself. Oh, I know. Well, that's not very kind. To in do, but... 1993, 20 years ago. Here you are. I think the country will do just fine. It, right now, it's it's at, it, people say that uh, it'll be a big curve after reunification because uh, of all the troubles that they have. And I'd say they're going to be at the bottom of the curve this year. Um, and within five, maybe ten years, Germany will have consolidated. It will be a stronger country for the reunification. But they are going through a true recession uh, now. How uh, did you do then? They did fine. They did better than we thought. I'm wondering now if Germany will come out of the euro. Maybe Germany is setting the model for... Um, for future economy, Germany is being like Calvin Coolidge because Germany is the saver country of Europe. It, the question is how much can it do to save Greece, to, to, to uh, help the spenders. From that time, 1990, in that era, your life has changed dramatically. You, you dedicate this book to Eli, Theo, Flora, and Helen. Who are they? Uh, those are my four children. Uh, at my my four children with my husband Seth Lipsky, the journalist and editor, uh, and our our uh, oldest son goes to the University of Texas. Our second son is a cadet at West Point. Uh, we have a daughter, Flora, who is in high school, and Helen is in let's see, sixth grade. Now, all through this period, you've you've been fairly visible working. Uh, That's right. I'm a columnist. Where do you write? I write for Bloomberg. And how often? I uh, well, it's a it's a regular column. It's now it's I say it's less regular now because of various bumps. But I've I've been a columnist for ten years. Uh, before that, with the Financial Times, so Council on Foreign Relations. Are you yeah, still yes. them? I am not with them. No, I was a fellow for um, in political economy there uh, or in economic history. I think for for years, um, and I've recently moved over to a new foundation, President Bush Forty Three's Foundation. Um, which is going to be wonderful. I, I'm interested in presidential history now. President Bush is a wonderful man, a great leader, and a Republican president with an enormous archive attached at the new George W. Bush Center in Dallas. So I, I like to research. I really like Coolidge's history and want to help it. And I wanted to learn a bit uh, in, at a presidential center and to work on economics. We, I am in a program called the 4% Growth Program, which is about economic growth. Coolidge had it. But what's that mystery? What was it? Let's think about it. Uh, and the 4% Growth Project looks at different ways you can get stronger growth. We all know that stronger growth makes everything easier, including, of course, the entitlement problem. You still teach at New York University? I do, yes. What do you teach? I teach, actually, the forgotten men in the 1930s, the economics of the 1930s, which are very controversial. So that's fun. Is it right? Is it wrong? You know. So if we followed you around the last few years uh, studying Calvin Coolidge, where would we find you? What That's you- important to say. I'm a trustee of the Calvin Coolidge Memorial Foundation, which is a great entity. Um, and if you want to know Coolidge, you go to Plymouth Notch, where he's, Vermont. Ver- where he's from, Vermont. It's a beautiful village, well-preserved. The foundation is there. The state is there. They have a state archivist, Mr. Jenny. 
Um, we have our own foundation there where we do some education. We have some material. And in fact, this summer with the Bush Center, we're hosting a high school economic debate. How perfect for Coolidge. Uh, around the time uh, that's the anniversary of his midnight swearing in by his father in, in early August. So a lot of young debaters will come from a Dartmouth clinic over and debate at the Coolidge Place. Once you've been to Plymouth Notch, you see how simple his background was. His father rode him down the road 10 miles, bumpy road, snow, freezing sleighs to get him to high school. And what he overcame to be President. Um, I want to mention some other Coolidge places, though, beyond the Forbes Library in Northampton, Massachusetts, which has been a great partner for me and helped me. There's also the Vermont Archive in Barrie, Vermont, where many of the Coolidge family papers can be found well taken care of. I encourage a visit there, too, to any Coolidge scholar. I want to ask you a question about something in the acknowledgments and what you think Calvin Coolidge, who was so frugal, personally would think you got a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Oh, he would be ambivalent about that. I mean, you can see the ambivalent. He didn't really like federal money to be spent on culture. Once in a while he would do it and he was and you see that in his own President Coolidge doesn't have a presidential library with a staff funded by Washington the way um, President Roosevelt would have or President Hoover would have or President the President's Bush have. Um, that he was old time. He thought it's, it's a wonderful story also of love for his wife. He, at that time, he thought a president should raise his own money for himself. All of it. Right. All of it. And he loved his wife very much, Grace, and she sacrificed a lot. Um, she was originally a teacher of the deaf at the Clark School in Northampton, Massachusetts. So he told his friend, Clarence Barron, raise me money. For afterwards, and Barron said anything Calvin, he very close to the Wall Street Journal. This is a Wall Street Journal story. Anything Calvin, okay, I'll raise money for. And everyone thought, well, it should be for the Coolidge Archive, right? That's what it's supposed to be. And he wanted it to be at a local library, the Forbes Library, where he'd studied reading the law, named after another saver, this Judge Forbes, a legendary figure in Northampton. And Calvin said, no, let the money be raised from my wife's charity the Clark School for the Deaf. So he took the money that would have preserved him and instead poured it into her charity. That's a great gift of love. And when you think about it, you see why. Maybe he felt he was a little frail. She had given up a lot for him. She called marriage a harness. She And she loved him, but she knew it was a harness. They pushed together forward. And he wanted to pay her back. And he knew she might be around decades after him. And he wanted her to be the important lady in the town. And she was, because she was the chief patron and donor of the Clark School for the Deaf. They gave the money to that. So he cut off your nose to spite your historical face, right? He gave his money to her. You say in your book, and we've noticed a lot of this is happening lately, that you read the diaries of his doctor. Why are these presidential doctors, and they're doing it today, publishing their their uh, diaries? I don't think some of it's published, uh, some of it isn't. We went to the archive. I, I, I'm not I'm not wild about the doctor. The doctor's a little creepy. Uh, Why? Uh, just uh, sort of had strong opinions about the family. The husband is mean to the wife, Calvin. You know, marriage is a complicated thing, and no one can ever know all of it. 
Uh, and I don't envy the White House first couples because everyone is always, it's really a court and everyone's always edging to favor one or the other and the husband has his court, the president and the first lady has a court and then they fight with each other like the czars. The Coolidge's had a minimum of that because they were good people but it was there and the doctor sided with Mrs. Coolidge who was a wonderful person, the extrovert to his introvert. And they played off each other. But uh, he knew that she was the extrovert. She knew why he was the introvert. And I, their marriage is admirable in, in an interesting way, uh, you can see in that post-presidency gift. How did you get on the foundation board of the Calvin Coolidge Foundation? Just out of affection for it. Uh, it, it is a worthy place that requires support. Uh, and if I can do anything to help, I'm not rich, but if I can do anything to help bring others there... Uh, to support the Calvin Coolidge Memorial Foundation, I will. We have a great director, Mr. Sarah, S-E-R-R-A. And that's, it's, it's Coolidge's mecca. It's where, cool. where is the foundation uh, headquarters? The, um, it's his place you go to. It changes people's lives when they see these houses. You drive uh, north past uh, um, Ludlow, Vermont, where there's a little ski resort uh, on the big road. It's not hard to get to. It's not much farther than, say, uh, Bellows Falls or Brattleboro, like that. Uh, you just drive up, and you'll see something amazing. You can stay in one of those ski resorts like Hawk Mountain or the little bed and breakfast around it. It's not that far from Dartmouth College, which is in New Hampshire. Is this Plymouth Notch? Plymouth Notch, Vermont, uh, and it's it's simple, and it will change your life and your your life and your children's if you see it. You can see the room upstairs where he worked. You can see the church where uh, one of his ancestors bought a pew. And got very involved in the town records too, because the Coolidges were allergic to debt. They were terrified of debt. This is a book is a story of how you overcome debt as a country or as an individual. And we found that there was this one ancestor who was a debtor. That's what the book opens with, because um, you know they, they. But this was their economics, their business, their small farms were were so important in their lives. Uh, and so it, you can just have a feel for how hard it was in Vermont in that time. Got some video from a program we did in 1999 on presidents, and his son John was still alive. Oh, that's wonderful. He's very old in this. I think, how old was he when he died? It was Oh, I don't know. but In his 90s, I know that, and it's not so long ago that John... Did he, you ever talk to him? I did not. He was born around, oh, let's see, around 1906. Okay, you know? let, let's watch this, and uh, you have to listen carefully, but he's talking about his brother Calvin, who, and I want to get that story from Oh, you. Calvin, yeah. You mentioned your brother, brother Calvin Jr., do you have any fond memories of him that you'd like to relate? Well, we were always together. We were going together and prepared our school. We were, we were, we were always together. He was a fine boy, a very brilliant boy. I had trouble keeping up with him in, in, in school. He was, he was a better, better scholar than I was. He, he was quiet. He didn't always join in some of the things that I did. Especially if not interested in baseball, which I was. So the impact of Calvin Jr. on the Coolidge presidency. This is like a Lincoln story. It's an amazing tragedy. Uh, Calvin Jr. was about 16 and he got a blister on the tennis court of the White House, and the blister went septic, and he died within about a week. 
if you can imagine, you're from a blister to death just before antibiotics came in. Again, you know, we're affected by these things, antibiotics. And so what a story. And they, there was nothing they could do about it. Coolidge had lost his sister, he had lost his mother, and now he was losing Calvin, who was uh, the, the luck child of the family. Indeed, as you can hear from a, a happy guy, a very, very clever, extremely loyal. And he didn't know what to do. I, I think um, the, uh, other historians have told uh, the story of the death of Calvin as the end of the Coolidge presidency. This was in 1924. He was elected that year on his own. Uh, four more years. Um, I don't, and they say, well, he was depressed for the next four years. There's a book that's pretty good, Gilbert. That's the thesis. I don't see that. It's not a story of yes, but the death of Calvin. It's but yes, that he persevered, the president, notwithstanding a blow, almost no one, he nor Grace could understand their, the life of their family. And you see a lot of sorrow and anger and trouble. He took a, pl- a, a tree from the lime kiln lot of his family in Plymouth. And they planted it somewhere around the White House. I've not been able to discern uh, the, the, what happened to that tree. I'm not sure it made it. You can't always take a spruce and replant it in Washington soil. But can you imagine they planted it so they could look out the window near the tennis court and see where Calvin had been? And the president himself said, the joy of the presidency went out for me. But I see him pursuing in a grand campaign, his his civil war was the tax campaign. He poured his energy into that instead and did prevail in the tax campaign in 1926. He won the presidency outstandingly. Can you imagine your son dies and then you, you win in 1924 as president, beating the third party, the uh, progressive party and the Democrats combined, the Republicans had the absolute majority in 24, even though a lot of the progressives were former Republicans. So he had, uh, he was tremendously popular because of his perseverance in part. Uh, but this story of Calvin, um, it, it just came over them. And you, you can see after the presidency, Mrs. Coolidge felt free to write about Calvin, which she hadn't. They had a tremendous, they didn't go out and sorrow about their child in public. They're very reserved people, very conscious of station. But after, afterwards, there's a poem that we have that she wrote. And of course, it changed their life forever. Calvin said, Calvin was the child who expresses the things you want expressed. Um, but I want to give credit to John, too, for, for opening the window to Calvin so lovingly, not competing with him. Calvin said when he worked in the tobacco field, that's the photo we... So someone said, well, if, you know, if my, if my dad were vice president or president, I sure wouldn't work in any tobacco field in, in Massachusetts. Calvin said, if your dad were my dad, you would. The Coolidge's wanted their kids to work. The, the, the Coolidge's w- emphasized virtue. What, what a contrast. It's a big contrast uh, from the Roosevelt's, who, where the kids ran around the house a lot and made a lot of noise, and it was fun. You can see this from the tell-alls by the servants, but sometimes, you know, were a bit rambunctious. I think they had an animal right around in the White House, the Roosevelt's. The Coolidge's were rigid with their kids about behaving in the White House in a kind of joyless way from time to time. Coolidge was extremely hard on John, who went to Amherst. And the low point um, of his life are the letters to John, which are in the Barry archive, where he, he berates John for not uh, performing well in college. Uh, so every tragedy, like the loss of a child, has an effect. 
they suffered from the loss of Calvin, um, but they did persevere. And what I, I like about John, I wish I had known him, was he was so good about preserving his father's legacy. He understood. And he was a wonderful man in that way, with incredible empathy. Uh, and, you, for example, the cheese factory in Plymouth Notch, which was the president's father's, they they wanted to make money from dairy. It's always a struggle. They had a cheese factory because before refrigeration, cheese was the way you transmitted protein. Um, John started that again as a, as a symbol of what it had meant to be a struggling farmer. And it was important to Coolidge because he always vetoed agricultural subsidy. Farmers never have made much money, he said. But that didn't mean he didn't understand how hard it was to be a farmer. So how do you, working now for George W. Bush and the foundation, from his foundation, how do you, how do you line up the fact that he had a five trillion dollar addition to the debt? But these are questions we have to ask a lot of presidents. And I am historically an economically oriented person, and I see that wars cost a lot of money. So let's just say that, first of all. Um, but one of the splendid things about George W. Bush um, is his great big spirit. So if I came up to the president and I don't report to him, it's a real foundation doing work in many areas, including, for example, curing cervical cancer in Africa, which president, and said, President Bush, you were wrong about Medicare Part D. He would say, well, maybe I was, or maybe he would say I wasn't wrong, but he has no trouble uh, creating an intellectual home for people with different ideas who might say something that might not be totally where he was or flatter him. He is in that, he is very much like Coolidge. He is not a narcissist. He is not a vain man, President Bush. He wants to serve. And there's a connection there um, with both Bushes and Coolidge. It's their sense of service, their spiritual side, Some I would say their piety. They know that it's an office that we're serving. And I see in President Bush, too, a, a very little vanity about the foundation. That's like Coolidge. After Coolidge was out of office, it wasn't about him. And that's incredibly hard to do. Once you've been the most important person in the world, you've got to stay. We all know that person, right? Once you've been on television all your life, very few people are not vain afterwards, excepting you, Brian. So so how do you overcome that and suppress vanity and serve? This preoccupies President Bush. Okay, well, let me there. make another connection here. Yeah. Vice President Bush became president in many people's eyes because he was the vice president with Ronald Reagan. And then his son, George W. Bush, became president because the fame of the name Bush. And you say in your book that the two things that made Calvin Coolidge president was the Boston police strike and the fact that he was picked as vice president. So let's start with the vice president thing. How did he, and it wasn't a foregone conclusion. How did he, how did, how did he, how was he chosen? How was Coolidge chosen? Yes. Yes, this is, well, this is very important. Imagine now we have this problem of public sector unions. We might like the people in them, but they're asking a lot. Or Reagan had the air traffic controllers. They were in a union, PATCO. They were good guys. They were asking a lot. In the case of Reagan in PATCO, they were jeopardizing public safety. The public, you know, because planes are important, they can crash. So Coolidge had an analogous situation as governor of 
Massachusetts. And for, because of certain anomalies in their law, the governor had a stay, say in the police story in Boston. The policemen of Boston went on strike after World War One. They were nice guys. They were underpaid. There was a terrible inflation. Nobody was acknowledging. Their station houses had rats. People chewed on, you know, little rodents chewed on their helmets. 18 ways they deserved a raise. They deserved better, better treatment. They were overworked. Nonetheless, they walked off, and this is a very rough time in American history, much rougher. There was chaos and violence and rioting and looting in Boston. So Coolidge was on the team, the leader of it, that fired these policemen. They they went in a union with Sam Gompers, not even a very radical union, a union, the union that was a favorite of President Wilson. But Coolidge said no right to strike against the public safety by anybody, anywhere, any time. I may have mixed up the order of that, but, so, but those were the three phrases. No right to strike against the public safety. I'm drawing a line. And he, what's incredibly um, scary about this from a political point of view is he had an election a few months away. He liked Irishmen. He was famous for getting the Irish vote. The policemen were Irish. He's firing them. They're nice. Their horses love them. What a bold, controversial move. Why was it at all good? Nobody knew at first. The reason that it was good is there's a limit to what a public sector union should do and jeopardize a city's safety is too far. And after that move, the unions in the cities, when they didn't do that anymore, and the cities felt safer and commerce was easier after that rough period. He received national recognition, including from Wilson, who waffled on the same issue, for his bravery. He did win election again, even though he had turned his back on these Irishmen, even though he felt terrible about it. And that gave him natural national stature, and it's why he was chosen. He thought he would be chosen for president. So, Well, you, you paint a picture about Woodrow Wilson going across the country uh, promoting the League of Nations at the same time that uh, Coolidge is governor of Massachusetts dealing with the strike. And how did they stay in touch in those days, and how, what did Wilson contribute to that whole debate? Well, well that's interesting. I, they didn't really stay in touch. I mean, you, uh, Coolidge might call the Navy or, or somebody, defend War Department for help. And you do see some traffic which uh, from Franklin Roosevelt, who was at Navy, uh, in this whole um, issue of the, of the strike and the port city, need to police it, need to feed it, you know, um, would there be a general strike? But Wilson communicated through Sam Gompers, who'd gone to Versailles, who was the Union statesman, his friend who had kept labor quiet during the war. Well, let me just back up a little and bit. For Samuel Gompers was, what, what did he run? American Federation of Labor. AFL. So he was the good labor guy. And it, why would he have gone to Versailles? What was going on well, in Versailles? Well, because the future of European workers and American workers is important. We knew that there was going to be revolution in Europe. There was already revolution in Europe. You think of, imagine the Soviet Union is being formed now. Maybe Germany's going communist too. What well, year was the Versailles these, meeting? Well, now? this would be 1918, 1919, 1920. We had unemployment in the U.S. We had, our budget had gone up, you know, it was one billion. It went to eighteen billion, eighteen times. We were we wondered whether we were bankrupt from World War One. All this is going on, so you need to keep the peace, right? And that's what Sam Gompers was. And the police of Boston affiliated with Gompers, thinking 
they'd be safe doing whatever they did because they were on President Wilson's side. But they all those policemen were actually a whole bunch of them were fired. They were all fired. They were any except of them hired the ones back? Who, no, except the ones who stayed. The, the ones we would call scabs, the ones or whatever, the ones who stayed. Uh, you know, not all. They hired new ones, and that was to make a point. That's rough deterrent justice of a very old-fashioned variety that we find incredible today. So, but. Wilson waffled. And if you read in that chapter, you'll see him on one day. He's kind of on the side of the public sector unions. He had his own strike to deal with uh, coming or maybe in Washington that he was in charge of, Washington, D.C. He was completely preoccupied statesman. I have to keep labor quiet so I can sell the League of Nations, right? Imagine, you know, the way a president would have to, so many issues, choosing among them, very tired, about to have a stroke. And there's these Boston policemen, and they didn't know how to deal with that. And uh, he just kind of puts it off. And the governor of Massachusetts deals with it and said that was Coolidge. And then Wilson says, pretty good. Okay, I accept that because the unions can't go too far. Even Gompers was ambivalent. How was Calvin Coolidge picked to be vice president? Well, he thought he would win, but um, that was a little... You mean for president? Yes, he did. Uh, because he had this national stature of showing how tough he was, just the way we would have a governor now doing that. Um, and uh, But he had a problem. Henry Cabot Lodge, the senior senator from Massachusetts, a great snob, an institution in the Senate, the the nominal, the titular, not nominal, but really the leader of the Senate, Lodge wasn't sure he liked Coolidge. Lodge was vain, and it was all about Lodge, and the Coolidge's, there are Coolidge's all over Massachusetts. It's a big Massachusetts name. Coolidge was some kind of swamp, backwood Coolidge, the, the governor. Not the kind of Coolidge that, that Lodge knew from Harvard, right? They considered Amherst the backwards. And he didn't really take Calvin Coolidge seriously. And he also toyed with him. At times he told him he thought he might be a good candidate, other times not. So if your own state is not for you at the convention, Chicago, surely you're not going to be nominated to be the president. And Coolidge didn't even actually go to that convention in Chicago. We've heard about the Blackstone Hotel and the smoke-filled rooms and how Harding was chosen as senator to be president. But there was a bit of a rebellion that the Senate was running the whole thing at Chicago, the Republican convention. And out of that rebellion, someone said, I'm going to nominate a governor. Not, uh, they thought Lane Root would be a, a, a mild, um, in-between progressive Republican from the Midwest. They thought he would be, and instead, they said, let's get a governor. So it was a Westerner who stood up and said, Coolidge for a vice president, he's a governor, let's have him. And there was a lot of applause all of a sudden at the convention. Uh, and that's how Coolidge got it unexpectedly. And I, I would estimate to Lodge's displeasure. You say then, after Calvin Coolidge was elected in 1924 as the president, fully elected after the death of Harding and all that, that his vice president was Charles Dawes and that they didn't like each other. Or he didn't like Dawes. What was that all about? Some of that was his own sanctimony. And some of that was that Dawes was impossible. He was the rogue deputy uh, from hell. How did he get picked? Well, Dawes was a wonderful man. He was in charge of basically procurement and distribution in World War One, getting stuff for the generals to the front line. So he gave a famous speech called the Helen Maria speech where someone was picking at how he spent money and uh, to get stuff to the front line to win the war. And he said, Helen Marina, Maria, we would do anything to win that war. And then he went uh, the other way, he was a flamboyant figure, very good speaker, uh, and was in charge of cutting the budget after 
the war in a crucial job we should look at now when we're writing a new budget law because they had this budget law where they created a budget office, sort of the, the forerunner to the OMB, but with more power. So he he was a man with Nixon went to China on the budget. Dawes did this. He cut the budget. He did the Dawes plan helping Germany. We lend them money. They pay their, the Germans paid everyone else back. What a statesman. Banking family, Chicago land family. But he was a maverick. He'd go his own way. And what infuriated Coolidge was uh, Coolidge had some close confirmation uh, hearings planned, and Dawes used his inauguration. We're in inauguration time to get up and berate the senators for their poor behavior and abuse of the filibuster, essentially. And he antagonized the Senate rather than following his orders from Calvin, his president, to to uh, appease, make friends with, grease the wheels for um, the nominations to come. You tell a story in here, though, about Calvin Coolidge having breakfast at the White House and a lot of members of the Senate and all calling in sick, not wanting to come. That's right. Well, he wasn't a get-along guy. Harding was a get-along guy, right? So Coolidge comes in, he's a governor. He sat presided over the Senate. I don't think presiding over the Senate was fun to him uh, when he had formerly presided over the Senate of the state of Massachusetts, where you can vote not just in a tie, but you, you have more power as a head of the Senate of the state of Massachusetts in that body than you do as vice president, president of our Senate here. So he, he hadn't really liked the senator's lodge, made his life hell there when he was vice president. And he but I, I want to say I think it was his virtue that made them not want to come. This story is Coolidge would host Vermont breakfasts, and the usher Ike Hoover, not the president, the usher would round up the people. And Ike Hoover didn't really like Coolidge. Coolidge was not a good tipper. And I kept a diary. Lo and behold, everyone loves FaceTime with the president. We all go Democrat or Republican when a president summons, right? The senators didn't go. So there's a roster of excuses. Sick, Senator Heflin. Sick, Senator Reid. Wife sick or friend sick. And you're like, wow. And, and, and Ike Hoover maliciously kept a record of the negative RSVPs. But what I see when I look at why these, why these senators turned down these Vermont breakfasts with the maple syrup from Coolidge's property is they knew he wasn't going to give them anything. Imagine the incredible pressure prosperity's been there for years. The budget should grow. Why not? Why shouldn't it grow? Oh, the farms need something. Oh, let's nationalize power. Muscle shoals was an abiding issue. Let's give the vets more. One mendicant after the other. And Coolidge was so unsatisfying at these breakfasts, he always said no. And after a while, they turned his back on their back on him. Uh, I found these quotes. I don't know if they're in the book, but I found out I wanted to ask you about it, that he was offered presidency of Amherst. And he says it's easier to control a Congress than a college faculty. Well, that makes sense. There, there's a sub-story there. Uh, there was a wonderful, also rogue, president of Amherst, who his friend Dwight Morrow would help put in, Alexander Michael John. And some viewers will know Michael John's name from Wisconsin, where he went later and created this interesting experimental college. It has a great legacy there. But Michael John... Um, was uh, progressive in a, a way that the Amherst men weren't used to. And he basically wasn't friendly to World War One, And that was as divisive as the Iraq War has been 
lately. It, it was a, a knife, uh, you know, scissors through society. You were on one side or the other. So the Amherst alums were on one side and Michael John was on the other. He wasn't pious enough for the Amherst old guys. And eventually they forced him out. He didn't go easily. And Coolidge was clearly on the side that forced him out. And he, he wasn't happy with that because he could see Michael. I mean, they could all see Michael John was talented. It was a hard call. And they were all, uh, you know, all of a sudden these nice men had negative articles about them in the New Republic when they'd fancied themselves fine fellows. And they had thought what they were doing was for Amherst. And Michael John spent quite a bit of money. That one of the issues was he borrowed and overspent on his personal life in the job as Amherst president. So this was a burr in their sides. They were unpopular for ejecting this university president. He didn't want to get involved in those politics rationally enough. There was also a a new head named just before he left office. At his early age of 60 died. And I read that he gave $700,000 to his wife, Grace, as, you know, what he willed to her. I don't know what his exact but I got on the calculator and it shows it would be worth $12 million today. He wasn't poor. And where did he make it? Well, one way he made it was he had another career as a successful journalist. Can you, Calvin Coolidge, columnist, and I like that about him too, and I I hope uh, to, to build some things around that. Coolidge wrote a column every day. Imagine a... How long? 500 words. Did you read a lot of them? I did. I have a book. There's a wonderful book that was put together um, uh, of the, the, only a year. He stopped after a year, just like he decided not to run again in uh, 28. He stopped. He said, that's enough. I've done them. But he, a lot of papers took the column. He made $75,000 as U.S. president. Uh, he made more as a columnist. It was an embarrassing amount of money because the depre- remember, remember how many papers we had then. Imagine every website paid you a little. That's what. So we made. I, I believe he made two hundred thousand alone from the column, and it, in in hard times that was a lot. But it was honest work. He wrote the column. He was exceedingly popular. Is there time for one story about that? We have very little time. Go ahead. Well, uh, someone paid him to write ten columns for two thousand dollars each, and. Okay, he sends them in, he gets the money, and they publish only six. He summons the editor at issue and says, just what the editor expects him to say. I wrote ten and you published only six. And what does the editor say in response? But we paid you, which is the standard answer. And Coolidge said, well, maybe those columns weren't good enough. Here's a check for the columns you didn't print, 8,000 back. And then we ask, why would he give back the money if the contract said $20,000? He was entitled to keep it. Yes, he was. And that was Coolidge's business lesson, his philosophy lesson, because he wanted to do business with the other party again. He wanted to be a good citizen. Very rare behavior now. And uh, I, I admired that. All right. With our remaining 30 seconds, which one of your children will end up being the Amity Slays of the 2000 and? 25 calendar year. The writer. The writer. I'm going to say Helen Lipsky. Which one would be the teacher? I'm going to, oh, so very difficult questions. I'm going to say, uh, I, I can't, I, I can't say. <laughs> they're, they're all going to be uh, very good. This is dedicated to them for their own perseverance, a Coolidge theme. They all persevere, and I'm very proud of them. We, we really are out of time, but is there anything new about Calvin Coolidge that you found that's in this book? That he struggled with debt and found a solution, as we do today, and look for our own. 
The picture on the cover is from where? I don't know, actually, but I would. it looks to me beginning of the presidency, 1924, something like that, maybe 19... Anyway, before it looks like before his son died, very happy. Thank you, Amity Slays, author of Coolidge. For a DVD copy of this program, call 1-877-662-7726. For free transcripts or to give us your comments about this program, visit us at QA.org. QA programs are also available as C-SPAN podcasts. 